Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years experience in Brazil and China. This is probably the obligatory part of the podcast where I talk about coronavirus and social distancing. I should have been out in the Amazon rainforest a bunch in these months, but now instead I have not left my house for about three weeks. I planned those trips to the Amazon fully knowing about the outbreak in China and that it would eventually reach here, but like everyone else, I guess it just never sunk in. It's funny how fast the news seemed to move when the outbreak was in China and in Italy, but now that we're living it in Brazil, it all seems to be moving in slow motion. Still, I can't complain. I have a large and comfortable apartment, and I sit on my couch spending my days drinking from the fire hose that is coronavirus news online. And there is plenty of work to do as all the areas I cover are being disrupted. Brazil can't send as many environmental agents into the field to fight deforestation and other crimes because of risks related to the outbreak. China and Brazil's plans to increase meat exports are also on hold. The son of Brazil's president picked a fight with China that took like a week to resolve. And now, probably like just about every journalist, I've become a part-time health reporter and have a Rolodex of infectologists and epidemiologists. I'm also finding some time to get more active on Twitter, something I often admit on this podcast I'm not very good at. We'll see if those Twitter habits hold once the coronavirus lockdown lifts. Anyway, what better time to podcast than when you're stranded in your apartment? I'm lining up an exciting docket of interviews that hopefully you'll enjoy listening to as much as I am enjoying recording them. I realize I repeat the same format most every interview with some occasional diversions. If you have an opinion on what is or isn't working or suggestions on who to interview or any other feedback at all, please email me at foreignpod at gmail.com. Okay. This week's guest is Mega Rajagopalan, an investigative reporter for BuzzFeed based in London. Mega used to work at Reuters with me, but actually we met before I started working there. She's always been very supportive throughout my career, helping me when I went to Myanmar to do some freelance stories and encouraging me to apply for Reuters. She's had an extremely enviable career, even with some hiccups that we will discuss. We talk about her investigative story about China's far western Xinjiang province. That article was really the first to explode the story on mass internment, essentially concentration camps, of the Uyghur Muslim minority there. In my opinion, it's definitely one of the best pieces of reporting on China in the last decade. Do yourself a favor and check it out. There's a link in the podcast description. She may never know if that's the story that got her kicked out of China, but in any event, she did get shut out and has acquitted herself very well reporting around the world for BuzzFeed. There's a lot more to this interview than discussion of China. We talk about the war on drugs in the Philippines that she covered, why we didn't all just end up moving to Myanmar, and how portrayals of female journalists are totally whack. One last technical note. I set up my microphone incorrectly for this in another interview, but only discovered it later. My voice as a result sounds very tinny, but luckily Mega does most of the talking, so it shouldn't be too disruptive. So without further ado, here's my interview with Mega Rajagopalan, an investigative reporter at BuzzFeed. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. If you could set the scene for me where you are, both geographically and physically, what time it is, and a little bit about what kind of work week you've had. Well, it's noon on a Friday. I'm in London right now. I'm sitting in my apartment, actually in my bedroom, because I thought the acoustics would be better in here because of the carpet. Um, (laughs) And I'm working from home, just like the rest of the world, because of coronavirus. That has pretty much characterize my work week. I'm supposed to be working on an investigative project that is theoretically supposed to come out this month. But instead, like all other journalists, I've been swept up into coronavirus coverage, which I think is absolutely right. But that's sort of been my week. 
So you're having to think of coronavirus stories too? Like, I mean, they're doing the same stuff to us there. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think our site, I think the good thing is that it's drawing more readers, I think, to read the news in general, like not just coronavirus stuff, but our site has seen an uptick in traffic kind of across the board, even on non-coronavirus stories. But it's clear that people are super hungry for information regarding anything to do with the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Okay, cool. And then first off, if you could tell me where you were born, maybe a little bit about what your family was like and what growing up was like. So I'm from Maryland, and I grew up in a suburb of Maryland called Ellicott City. And both my parents immigrated from India in the 70s. My dad is a chemical engineer. My mom teaches disabled kids, mostly autistic kids. There have been no journalists in my family. I don't think anybody ever thought that I would become a journalist. Um, (laughs) It was kind of a, a really random thing. I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. I really liked reading fiction and I wanted to write fiction and poems and stuff like that. And I mostly did that all through high school. I wasn't super interested in current events really. And when I got to college, I happened to go to Maryland because I ended up getting a scholarship there and it was cheaper anyway, because it was a state school and the school of my home state. And because of that, I ended up thinking that I should pursue a degree in journalism because they have a good journalism program. And I started working for the school paper and covering crime there. And crime is a bit of a problem in the town where University of Maryland College Park is located. And I just got really into it. And I kind of thought that I would be a cops reporter. Like David Simon went there and was the editor of that same paper. Uh I like worshipped him and the wire was running. And I kind of thought I wanted to work at the Baltimore Sun and be a cops reporter. Never really ended up doing that. But I think the kind of like spirit of that time was a lot about fact finding and holding the powerful to account and all of those things that student journalists love. And I think it was a good spirit to carry me into my my days at Reuters, which is where we met. Right. So the first time you wrote a journalistic article was in college when you joined the paper or when you got into the journalism school or what exactly pushed you to do that? I mean, it was a good school for it, but is there anything in particular that once you did it really got you into it or Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it sounds kind of stupid to say, but I wanted to be a writer and I thought it was more practical to become a journalist than to try to write novels, which I guess in literal terms, it is more practical. But I mean, it's it's not like a super practical profession, you know, in terms of the state the industry is in. But that was sort of my thinking at the time. And yeah, the first news article I wrote was for the Diamondback, which is a school newspaper at Maryland. And I'm trying to remember what it was about. I, I don't think I could really say it was like an accountability story. Actually, it was a scoop about something the university administration had done or something like that. And I remember when it was published, everyone at the paper was really happy about it because it was a bit of a scoop and it pissed off some people. I thought like, this is kind of cool. I published something that uncovered something bad that somebody had done. And I pissed off people as like, that's actually a good thing. That's kind of fun. So I kept doing it. And when you're a student, there's a sense of righteousness, especially because like, these are all Mm -hmm. adults that are running the university and you're telling them that they're doing something wrong and you're sort of able to do that from a position of minor power that is the student newspaper. So that was really appealing to me. And so before we move on from college, what do you make of a journalism school degree in retrospect? Would you recommend it to prospective journalists and how did you find it? No, I would not recommend it. 
I always get asked this question. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I don't think journalism school is necessary. <laughs> it's very expensive, like for what you're getting out of it, which is a really unstable career in an industry that does not enable people to pay back their student loans. I'm lucky because I did my degree at a public university with a scholarship as an undergrad. I did not go to a very expensive master's program at a private university, which a lot of people end up doing because either they want to make a career change into journalism or they think it will enable them to build connections to get to kind of like a higher level within the industry. And often it does do that. Like people come out of Columbia and similar programs with really good contacts and they're able to go to a high level in the industry. But I think there's a problem when there's a gateway to the industry that's created by these expensive degree programs that not everyone can access. Even when there is funding given, there's a cost to taking a year out of working that many people cannot do. I think that the industry, it is in addition to being a business, journalism institutions are a public good. They should serve the public good. And because of that, I think that it helps when journalists are sort of more representative of the public at large. And if we're cutting off people of lower income or from a background that doesn't enable them to go to journalism school, then it's kind of doing a disservice. And I think like not all journalism institutions in the U.S., but at many of them, if you look around, it's very elite. People are mostly coming from the East Coast or the West Coast. A lot of them have degrees from elite universities. These things are not disqualifying or anything, but it does suggest that perhaps there's more diversity needed in the way that journalists are selected, I think, at the entry level. I get asked this question all the time by friends of mine who are like, oh, like my 22-year-old cousin is thinking about going to journalism school or whatever, even younger than that. And like, what do you think? Can you send them some advice? And without fail, I always send them this Michael Lewis essay called J School Confidential. It's from 1993. <laughs> I feel bad because it bashes Columbia which is not fair because my opposition is not specifically to Columbia, but to journalism's master's programs like in general. But it sort of makes fun of the kind of pseudoscientific curriculum of some of these institutions where they teach you kind of the formulaic approach to uh, storytelling and that sort of thing. I think it's a really funny piece. It's perhaps a little bit unfair, but I think the bottom line is like a lot of these skills, even sort of technical skills that you would need in broadcast journalism, for instance, you can kind of pick up on the job. There's some specific skills in journalism that you cannot, things like building databases and doing data-driven reporting and, and stuff like that, that I do think it's helpful to have classroom instruction for. But the kind of like nuts and bolts of journalism, I don't really think that you need a master's degree for. Like it shouldn't be as professionalized as it is currently. Yeah. I think from talking to people on this podcast that the UK actually has it figured out pretty well where people usually figured it out during or after college and then they go to like these super blue collar sounding universities. I mean, I, I'm not that familiar with them and the programs are super short. They're like not even a year and then they get out and, you know, go work for some tiny paper. Seems to be the formula a lot of people follow in the UK yeah. um, that seems a bit more accessible. I guess the other side is just like the demise of local journalism in the US. Like when I was graduating, I graduated around like 08, 09 and that was a time when people were still going to local papers, metro papers, and expecting to come out of those jobs and then move into larger newspapers. And like that was sort of the career path back then. That career path 
doesn't really exist anymore. I think that was sort of the last breath of that. And unfortunately, it's getting worse. So it sucks because a lot of people who went to perfectly good schools aren't able to access more elite journalism institutions. And that's sort of they don't really have the option necessarily of going to a local paper because that local paper either doesn't exist or it's not hiring anyone. Yeah, my first job out of school was at the Myrtle Beach Sun News. And Mm. I think like many people, I got in there and then realized a few months into it that that path like you said, didn't exist anymore that, you know, I wasn't going to be moving up to the bigger paper, to the bigger paper, to the bigger paper till I get to the Washington Post or the New York Times just wasn't going to happen. How did it go for you when you graduated? I think if I recall correctly, you ended up at ProPublica, but were there internships in between? How how did that go down? So my first job out of college was actually, I did an internship at Time Magazine back when they had a big bureau in Hong Kong. And I did a, a language study program in China for a bit. And then And I went back to the States and I was essentially a book assistant based at a DC think tank called the New America Foundation. I was working for the journalist Steve Call, who's actually now the dean of Columbia Journalism School. So I probably shouldn't have bashed Columbia. (laughs) But it's like a really incredible journalist and also a great boss and a nice person, which that's like a trifecta that like nobody has, I think, but he really is. And I was the assistant on his ExxonMobil book. It's called Private Empire, ExxonMobil and American Power. So I did that for like a year, even though it was like book assistant sort of sounds like a lot of just like research oriented tasks. It was really a lot of reporting because of the amount of labor that he puts into his books. It was a lot of phone work, a lot of wandering around Capitol Hill and trying to talk to lobbyists and congressional staff and stuff like that, which seemed very glamorous to me at age 22. Yeah. And we took a trip to Alaska to interview government scientists about the Exxon Valdez spill. Yeah. It was a really fascinating project that I really value. I think after that, I went back to China on a Fulbright scholarship, did some research, moved back, did essentially like a six month internship slash blogging project at ProPublica and then joined Reuters after that. Cool. Wow. So what was your Fulbright about out of curiosity? I don't think I ever asked you that. It was actually, this was a different time. It was before the current president of China, Xi Jinping, took power. So it was about freedom of information laws in China, which nobody remembers were actually a thing, but they were a thing. And they existed in Shanghai and there was sort of an environmental version of them. And the project was about sort of documenting how journalists and other people are using these laws and how they compare to their counterparts in the U.S. and the EU. Wow, I'm amazed they because that has to get through a Chinese committee to prove that. Yeah, too, but like, right? so, like, my, I don't know for sure. But back then, my impression is that it was a bit of a rubber stamp process. It was rare that you would get rejected. I kind of think that maybe now it wouldn't be the case, but I don't really know. And so you were working uh, or interning at ProPublica in the U.S. and you just saw a listing for Reuters and applied? And that's how, or how did you end up at Reuters in China? There was an adjunct at Maryland who I had actually never taken a class with, but he was an editor at Reuters in New York. And when I got back from China, I was just like spamming everyone that I had ever met and just trying to get a job. And somebody suggested that I cold email him. So I emailed him and I was like, hey, is Reuters hiring for anything? And he was like, I think I actually, I think I just asked for coffee. I said I was looking for a job and then I asked for coffee. And he was like, well, do you have any plans to be in New York soon? Like we could have a coffee. And of course I had no plans to be in New York, but I had no plans anyway. (laughs) So I was like staying at my parents' house. So I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be in New York like this week. Like, will you be there? Like if he had said no, I don't know what I would have done, but he was like, oh yeah, like come by the office. So I booked a bus ticket from my parents' place, which is a bit south of Baltimore to New York. I had one friend in New York who was living in a 
really crummy apartment in Chinatown, <laughs> uh, which I later moved into. And I literally slept on his floor. I practiced a lot. Like, I think it's crazy because it wasn't even a job interview. I don't know what I was practicing for, but I just thought like Reuters is this like very specialized publication. I think I had interviewed a, like one of Reuters competitors before and not performed very well because my financial journalism knowledge wasn't super great in college. So I like I read up, I read this book called The Bloomberg Way, which is about Bloomberg's style of reporting, which is uh, Bloomberg's obviously a big Reuters competitor. And I practiced with my friend who's four I was sleeping on, who was like a junior analyst at Goldman Sachs at the time. And and then I, I like put on my only like formal outfit. I went to have this coffee. And then the coffee was, of course, extremely informal. And he just wanted to chat. But then he was like, oh, there's this training program that you might be good for. You should interview for it. So he put me up for the program, which was great. And then the program, uh, Jake, you did the training program too, right? Yeah, um, yeah, I did it yeah, a couple so, of years later. Yeah, so you probably remember that it was a whole bunch of interviews. It was like six interviews or something like that. So I went through the whole process and that's how I ended up there. Because there's also a similar program in the Americas, but I assume they looked at you or your experience in China and thought, oh, you'd be a better fit for the Asia one. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what happened. I think like I wanted to be in New York at the time, but I didn't have a good reason. I was like, oh, I just want to be closer to family or something. And they were like, oh, okay, cool. But you speak Chinese, so you should be up for the China program. <laughs> Which is like, I mean, it worked out great. So like, I can't really complain. But yeah, that's kind of how that went. Okay, so then you get into Reuters. So you, you ship off, you move there for this program, right? Yeah. And because you, you were in it for a bit before we met, but how did you find the start of it? Was it a big shock? Did you get used to it quickly? How'd it go? Um, I thought it was great training. It really was. I couldn't have asked for a better place to kind of spend my first years as a working journalist. It was really good. I think uh, I spent like my first few months on the economics team in Beijing, which is, as you know, is like covering sort of what the central bank does, as well as how macroeconomic trends impact people around the country. And then I got moved to the politics team. And that's what I really wanted to do. Like all I wanted to do was be a politics and general news reporter. I wasn't super interested at the time in some of the other areas of coverage that Reuters has, including financial markets and energy and things like that. So I was really happy. They ended up offering me a permanent job on that team and I took it. And then I was on the politics team for, for the next, I guess, like three and a half years or so. It's good to be at Reuters and like places like Reuters, I think, that are like highly structured, I think, when you're kind of early in your career, because you just learn to do a lot of stuff that you wouldn't ordinarily learn to do. Like if I had just started my career at a place like BuzzFeed that is kind of like a much smaller operation that doesn't have this kind of long history of how they do things, I just wouldn't have learned a lot of really basic stuff about covering a beat. I remember like we had to cover foreign ministry briefings in a very routine way. Like we had to take turns and stuff like that. And I covered a lot of state visits and there's like a way to cover a briefing. There's a way to translate a sentence so that it's exactly accurate. There's a way to cover a briefing so that you don't miss any important information. And like, that's just stuff that you have to learn by doing. You have to learn also news judgment, what's important to take away from a certain story and like what's worth publishing, what needs to be ignored and how you figure those things out. You don't really learn that unless you just do it 
day in, day out for a long period of time. And that's kind of what it enabled me to do. So I really, really value that. And so this is when we met. Uh, we met before I joined Reuters. And just out of curiosity, I looked back in my Gmail and I remembered that you had taken a trip to Myanmar or Burma and done some freelancing stories there. And I was looking into doing the same thing. And you were super nice. You had sent me, you know, get in touch with this or that fixer, you know, these people there. You gave me a bunch of contacts. And that was really great. You were super nice to me. When did you make the trip to Burma? That must have been before Reuters, right? It was. It was like after my Fulbright year, I did some freelancing. I was just like, I was kind of like just decided that I was going to take some time and travel around Southeast Asia and write a few things while I was at it. And at that time, Myanmar was kind of just opening up. I think Thane Sane had come to power like fairly recently. They were doing a lot of things that at the time felt really remarkable. Like they had released like tens of thousands of political prisoners. They were allowing, uh, they were allowing greater leeway for like media and like civil society groups, journalists in the country were publishing all kinds of things that they hadn't been able to publish before. It just seemed like this almost miraculous opening up. Yeah. I just thought it would be a really interesting time to be reporting there. So I ended up planning this trip. I guess it was, that must've been around 20, 2010 when that happened. But I, I spent about, I think probably a, two or three weeks or something. And then I reported out a couple of stories. And it was a really interesting experience because I'd never really done a lot of trip planning or like logistics planning for reporting trips. So it was like a good toe dipping into that. There were a couple of years there when everybody thought Myanmar was going to be the next big thing. And I, I was even like, I was looking to leave the magazine job I was at. And I was kind of looking around and I was like, oh, is Myanmar going to be the next China? And I go there and I do a few stories and it was a great experience, but I was like, no way am I moving here uh, oh, right now. No, um, I felt, I like, I fell in love with the place. I really was like, I want to move here. Like, I really fell in love because Myanmar is a beautiful country, first of all. And yeah. second of all, it's like when you're coming from a place like China where people really, it's, it's access is hard for journalists, like, as you know. And like Myanmar at the time, it was just so full of energy and optimism and like everybody wanted to talk and like you could meet people in cafes and like stuff like that. And I just loved it. And I, I thought, you know, like I talked to some people when I went back home after that trip and I was like, what if I just moved to Myanmar? And they were like some like kind of older school journalists, I guess. And I mean, I remember like one of my mentors was like, yeah, actually, this is kind of like a path that people have taken to like become foreign correspondents. It's like they just like moved out and then became stringers and then eventually got on staff or whatever. So it wouldn't be the worst thing to do. And then I asked like another person who I won't name, but at the time was like a senior investigative reporter who had like won a Pulitzer and stuff like that, who I really trusted, but is also kind of like just like a no bullshit guy and uh, we were having coffee and I was like I'm thinking about moving to Myanmar and he was like Mega what's happening to Myanmar is wonderful for the people of Myanmar like it's a great like <laughs> positive historical development but it is a shithole and you should not move there and I was like what are you talking about and he was like you just spent a year in China like go to move to China this is the story of the century like why would you pass that up for this like kind of smaller potatoes thing so like he didn't literally mean that Myanmar is a shithole, of course, but like he meant that why would you choose a kind of smaller story when you have access to a much bigger story, which is China, which I think turned out to actually be good advice. Yeah. And I would say like I would move there now if I could get like a correspondent job. But I was meeting people from the I forget what the English language newspaper was there. And they were kind of living on like 15 grand a year and like yeah. barely getting by. And there were these business weeklies. And it seemed like a harder way to crack in than living in China. 
China. There were just way more jobs in China. And I was at that yeah. stage where I'd had a few jobs and, you know, I was looking to break into what I saw as like the top tier of journalism. And I saw that then eh, Myanmar, maybe not the place to do it, but I would go back now. I mean, the food was great. I love the people. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, there are a lot of journalists that covered that and then the election and the kind of early years of Aung San Suu Kyi who have made great careers out of it, like Poppy, who is the current Reuters bureau chief in Myanmar, like she's covered it for years. She knows that story inside and out. And I think she's like one of the best journalists working in Southeast Asia right now. Joe Freeman, her partner, is also really amazing and did a lot of work there. Aung Nang So. Actually, everybody who worked with Reuters in Myanmar, I think is fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And then, yeah, I remember I emailed you saying thanks. And that's when you said, oh, Reuters is going to hire for some more people. And then I end up joining Reuters and we end up being colleagues. And you said you worked there about three and a half years I guess I think just, like four all told like with the trainee stuff and you told me a little bit about the briefing so that's a little bit of the flavor of it but what led you to then leave Reuters and join BuzzFeed so I never would have thought that I would join BuzzFeed so what happened with BuzzFeed is they advertised the China position like far before they actually hired anyone to fill it because getting accreditation in China is really hard for online news organizations and I don't think they understood at the time how much of an uphill battle that would really be but essentially it was like this long process where they had to convince the Chinese government to treat them as a real news organization. So when that happened, it was quite early in BuzzFeed's time doing news and sort of branching out from the entertainment content for which it's best known. And I had never read BuzzFeed News. Like, I didn't really know too much about what it was. And then what happened, like, in 2016 was I was still working at Reuters. I had been there for four years. So I was sort of thinking about making a change because in any job, you can get to a point where the learning becomes less fast and that sort of thing. And I actually met Miriam Elder, who was the world editor of BuzzFeed at the time and who became my boss, I met her at a dinner at a Sichuan restaurant in Beijing that a journalist friend had put together. And we basically shared a taxi back to her hotel because my house was in the same neighborhood after the dinner and sort of got to talking. And then I saw her again while she was there that week. She was on a recruiting trip for that China job. And she said a couple of things that really made me think about it. Like the first was that they felt very optimistic about actually being able to get accreditation after all of the work that she had put in and that BuzzFeed's then editor-in-chief Ben Smith had put in. And the other thing that she said was just that they had a new way of looking at news. They were writing for a younger audience. They had the ability to put a lot of effort and time into stories that were worth it. So like, I really wanted to write like big investigations at the time. That's sort of what I wanted to do. And she had seen a couple of things that I'd written for Reuters and she had liked them. And she basically said like, that's kind of what I want. Like, I don't want somebody who's going to come in and sort of rewrite what the wires are doing or do a lot of analysis and stuff like that. She wanted stuff that was going to break new ground or be really telling. Miriam has this thing that she always says. She says she hates stories that are about like a fishing village somewhere. And then all of the young people have left the fishing village and there's only like old people left. <laughs> and like, that's the feature. Like she hates stories like this. And like, how many stories like that have you read about like Shenzhen and places like that? Like there's so yeah, many, right? So lot. like, I think like what, what she means by that is like she doesn't like foreign correspondence that's like postcard journalism. Like I don't find there's anything wrong with that style of writing, but I do think that 
working at a place like BuzzFeed, there's there's a limited amount of stuff that we can spend our time on because we don't have the staff of the New York Times, Reuters or whatever. So like if we're going to spend our time on something, it better be making an impact. And I think that working there has enabled me to just focus on the stuff that's impactful. And I think that they were true to their word. Like I have to say, they have given me more leeway and more resources to do meaningful work than I would have thought possible at that stage of my career. So I think that I bought the pitch when they pitched me on the job, and then it did turn out to be true. Cool, yeah. So you get the job at BuzzFeed, you're their first correspondent there, you open the bureau, and how does that go? And just kind of lay out the steps from there to where you are today. Right. So I got the job at BuzzFeed and immediately like we knew that there was going to be a bit of a wait for the visa. I actually I didn't know whether we were really going to get it or not. I was a little bit concerned about it. But then anyway, so BuzzFeed essentially didn't really have anyone in Asia at all around that time. Like we had offices in Tokyo and Mumbai, but that was like a Japanese operation that was writing in Japanese for a Japanese audience. And then sort of the same thing in India. So on my team, I was really the only one. So we just made this decision that I was going to spend a few months reporting on Southeast Asia, like waiting for this China visa to come through, which, as you know, is a really like classic thing that happens to China correspondents when they're waiting for visas for months and months. So I ended up going to Thailand. I did a bunch of stories around Southeast Asia. And then after several months, I think around, around like six to 10 months, something like that, visa finally came through. And I moved back to Beijing and reset up, started thinking about stories to do. I think my first few months there, there was a lot going on with North Korea. And I ended up doing a lot of work on North Korea and stuff like that instead of China. So I don't think I really ruffled too many feathers in China around that time. And at that time, essentially, the deal we had with the foreign ministry was that they would issue us six month journalist visas, which is a bit of a loophole, because I, I guess this is what they say. I don't know if it's true or not. But usually they do not issue one year visas to journalists from online only media organizations. That's just their policy. Policy. So this was the same for the Huffington Post. I think there's probably other news organizations that have had the same setup. But in practical terms, it doesn't matter. It's like you have all of the same rights. Essentially, the only difference is that you have to renew your visa more often. So that was sort of the setup that we had. So then six months comes around, renew the visa, no problem. Got a bit of a talking to from the Chinese consulate in New York. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I think they said, please report more positive things about China or we'll tell your boss. And sure. <laughs> I think he actually said, we'll tell like Mr. Ben Smith, who was the editor of BuzzFeed at the time. And I was like, Mr. Ben Smith is the one who's putting me up to do all this negative stuff. So <laughs> it's like, it's always <laughs> funny to me, like how little they understand about the way that process works. But um, anyways, so that happened. I went back and I started working on kind of a sizable piece about Xinjiang, which is the far west region of China, where the mass internment camps are located that you have likely heard of. There's more than a million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities that are being held in these massive internment camps. And that was back in 2017, kind of the years since it's become this global news story. So I decided that I was going to do a lengthy piece about that. I spent a few months researching it and then I went out and did that piece. And I don't know for sure, but I suspect that it was that piece that sort of led to me losing my visa. Right. And just to touch on that, I remember when you posted that on Facebook and I was like, holy shit, I, it was a great piece, super well reported. We all knew about internet being shut down and all sorts of things in Xinjiang, but we didn't really know the extent to it. And to me, at least, that was the story that blew that story wide open. 
and I mean, it's a complex story. It's what I would say about my story was like, I was the first journalist to find and visit one of the camps. I was the first one to write about it from a surveillance perspective. I think there had been previous coverage that didn't really touch on the surveillance angle. I will say the Globe and Mail also had a very good piece that was before mine. It was about like sort of similar themes, but not quite the same. It was sort of less about the surveillance side. But that piece was very good, did not get the attention that it deserved because the Globe and Mail is behind a paywall. I suspect that that's why, Um, even though Nathan told me that it performed quite well on their site. Anyway, your story was a total bombshell. I don't know if you won any awards for it, but you should have. What happens after that? How quickly do you lose your visa? So it's weird. I guess to be clear, like, as you know, like when journalists lose their visas in China, it's very rare that they give an explanation. Nobody ever tells you, like, this is the thing that you did wrong because they want to maintain the level of plausible deniability. So essentially what happened was, like, the story comes out. I think I was, like, in the States or something. And then I got a call from someone who said that they were representing the Beijing government. They wanted to have coffee at the Mon Coffee. Yeah, Mon Coffee, like in near San Lichun, uh, which is like right. a Korean coffee shop that is best known for its waffles. And so we, went, I went to this Mon Coffee and the, there was badge carrying state security officials, which is unusual. As you know, like you get hassled by the police a lot in China and you have a continuing relationship with like foreign ministry minders and stuff like that. But to actually hear from state security is like quite unusual. So that was like sort of the first clue that something had gone wrong. I didn't know what to make of this meeting. Like they didn't say to me, oh, you're going to be thrown out or like this and that. Actually, what they wanted was to know more about my contacts. They didn't even really get too much into the specifics of Xinjiang or anything like that. But I thought it was weird. And I wrote a kind of memo about it to my employer. And then towards the end of the year, I had a meeting with the foreign ministry. It was a routine meeting. I was, of course, the only person representing my news organization in China. So it's normal to have those kinds of meetings, especially towards the end of the year. And this was actually at another Mon Coffee. I don't know what's going on with Mon Coffee. And (laughs) but this was at at the Mon Coffee. It is very good. It's, It's a really good coffee shop. But there's a lot going on at the Mon Coffee across the street from the foreign ministry in, in China, that I would say to any <laughs> would be uh, <laughs> like people who are sourced up. But anyway, it really but, doesn't seem like the most discreet place to meet. It's not. Yeah. yeah, it's like, yeah, I don't, yeah, that place is like Grand Central Station. Like, I don't really understand it, but like, I guess, I mean, it's not a secret to them, right? What they're doing. But anyway, right. so they sat me down and they were like, this reporting on human rights is like you're getting carried away and this and that. And they were like, what you've written is wrong. And I was like, if you can point to any errors, please let me know. We'd be glad to correct it. And they were like, we're not talking about any specific errors, but it was wrong nonetheless. I was like, okay, (laughs) great. Sure. All right. So then, you know, it's like during those situations, I think it's best to be polite as I was. And we actually had a pretty good conversation. You know, it's it's always good to hear their perspective and stuff. So we had like kind of a free ranging conversation for a while. And then I said, my visa is up for renewal in a couple of months. Like, are there going to be any problems? Said, no, we don't anticipate any problems. Just make sure you apply after the spring festival holiday when people are back from leave. And so I was like, okay, so spring festival, as you know, is like a week long holiday in China. So I waited for it like the Monday after the spring festival holiday. And I put in my application, it was to the Chinese consulate in New York, and I got like a receipt, like we got it in the email. And I was like, great. So I kind of forgot about it. Uh, I had to go and do a story in Sri Lanka. So I went to Sri Lanka for like 10 days. And because of the way my visa worked, I couldn't get back into the country after that, which I knew. So I asked my boss, is it okay if I work remotely for a bit? And she was like, well, yeah, sure. But how long do you really think it's going to take? And I was like, well, I don't really know. 
And then I talked to them again in April, and this visa still hadn't arrived. And the foreign ministry was like, we never got your application. And I was like, well, but I got an email back from you guys. And they're like, well, we never got it. So I was like, something's really gone wrong here. And then the visa ended up being rejected formally around May. And then we tried to push the issue didn't really get anywhere. They essentially said that this is a standard practice that for online-only organizations, you can only renew your visa twice, which, first of all, no one ever mentioned this before. Second of all, Matt Schiavenza, who had been the correspondent for the Huffington Post, did it more than twice, so that's not true. So it's still a bit mysterious. I think other people at BuzzFeed, like uh, my boss, for instance, have had conversations about this with Chinese diplomats that I was not present for because they happened in like New York and stuff like that. So I can't really say what happened in those conversations. It, to me, it's not clear what exactly went wrong. No one ever said, oh, it's because of that story. It's sort of been widely interpreted to be because of that story. I do think that there's something different about BuzzFeed publishing something like that versus, you know, the Wall Street Journal, which has also done really good Xinjiang coverage or, or even Jerry at AP, like, because like the way BuzzFeed is like stuff really goes viral when you put it there. And that coupled with like, it was the first story to really do that. Like a lot of people read that story. And I think that that was probably part of what was problematic about it to them. BuzzFeed is not blocked in China. I believe even to this day, it's not blocked. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I think like it's weird because the authority that blocks news websites is separate from the foreign ministry. So it doesn't always make sense what gets blocked and what doesn't. But regardless, like people in China could have read it and probably did read it. So maybe that had something to do with it. But I mean, it's all just speculation on my part. Right. And so then what happens with your life after that? So essentially, I was kind of stuck outside of China. And all of my stuff was in my apartment in Beijing. And I guess like the only person who had my spare key was like my ex-boyfriend, who fortunately I'm still friends with. And he's a really nice guy because he was like watering my plants while I was away. So I asked him to like go get some valuables, like my old reporter's notebooks and like my grandma's pearl necklace was there. This sort of random things <laughs> that I didn't want the movers to take. And then essentially after that, I was like, there's nothing I could really do. So then we called like a moving company and it was a mess. Like the moving company was like, why are you not here for this? Like, I don't know if you experienced this, but like when you leave China, there's all these stupid regulations, like the customs department wants to come in and do an inspection for, to make sure you're not smuggling in any like Ming vases right. or like other valuables out of the country. And then they want to do like a banned books inspection. And like, it's a mess. It really is. And like, for all of that, you have to physically be there and hand in your passport. And like, there's a lot of stuff that happens, right? So essentially, the moving company figured out this workaround that we could ship the stuff through Guangzhou. It was totally legal, by the way, totally above board. But like, it made a difference because I think the city regulation in Guangzhou is different or something. So then essentially, moving company shows up to my apartment, a very nice friend of mine had agreed to supervise this move. They get to the apartment and the lock is broken. Who knows why the lock is broken, by the way? They have to call the locksmith. Locksmiths in China are not going to open your door unless you present a residence permit because they want to know you're not breaking into the apartment. So I ended up getting on like a WeChat video chat with these movers. And then finally they get into the apartment. I'm on this chat with them. I'm telling them what to take and what belongs to the landlord. They wrap everything up. They send it to Guangzhou, like sorted out all the other stuff. My, my landlady, fortunately, was an extremely nice woman who allowed me to extend my lease by a month and was extremely accommodating about all of this sort of stuff. So that was was very lucky. So the stuff goes to Guangzhou. Meanwhile, I was in Australia working out of our Sydney office for what I thought was going to be like a week or two. And it had gone on to 
like the Australian winter and I had packed like one pair of jeans and like, <laughs> cause I, I packed for Sri Lanka. Like, I mean, yeah, I had nothing. I had like a, a light jacket. And then, so I'm just sitting there waiting for it. And then like basically a few months go by, it gets to be about September, October, I get a notification. Like at that time, we hadn't figured out my next step yet because we were still kind of in this process. We were sort of hoping that I would be able to get back to China somehow. So we hadn't really decided. So I didn't know I was going to be moving to the Middle East. So essentially, I had the mover send all the stuff to my parents' garage in Maryland, which is like, yes, I'm an adult. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, stuff like, yeah, like, so the stuff ends up at some like shipping warehouse in Baltimore. And I got a notification and I'm thinking, this is great. Like, I'm home free. Everything has gotten through. This is awesome. And then by coincidence, I was meant to be home on vacation like that week. So the next day, my mother goes off to work. And then my father goes to pick me up from the train station because I was coming in from uh, New York and leaving only my grandmother, who is like in her 80s and like a new immigrant from India and speaks like zero English, like at home by <laughs> herself. And my mother had forgotten that she'd scheduled a charity pickup like that week. And the people from the charity come, they knock on the door and my grandma just points to the garage. She opens the garage door. She didn't know what was going on. And the, they took everything. Like they took all of my stuff, which was sitting in Holy the garage. <laughs> you know, yeah, like I ended up spending the entire week just going back and forth to this thrift store in Rockville where they were like selling off my stuff piece by piece. And I remember like walking into the thrift store and the like freaking absurdly expensive air purifier that I had from Beijing was like this blue air purifier that's probably worth like four or five hundred bucks. It was like on the floor of the thrift store being sold for thirty dollars. And I was like, wow. no. Yeah, so I lost a lot of stuff actually, I have to say. But yeah, though it was a debacle. Yeah. They gave it back the stuff they still had they gave back or well so it's weird situation so like what happened was like buzzfeed issues all of the foreign correspondence like basic safety gear so like you know it's like body armor and like helmets and like gas masks and stuff like that just in case something really goes down or like you need to go somewhere or like whatever right and so i had all of this stuff it was part of the stuff that was taken unwittingly by the charity and I think, like, at first they were like, no, you donated this, like, we can't give it back. And then they started unpacking my stuff, and then they saw that I had body armor, and they were like, ooh, we don't know what the deal is with these people, so let's just, like, give it back to them. So then after that, they were very cooperative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's good. Turned out better than <laughs> all things considered. Yeah, I got mean, back to the U.S. Yeah. That's, yeah, it was, like, mostly in one piece. I mean, I realized, like, I don't need to own anything. So I didn't miss most of that stuff. So it's, like, yeah, it's, like, a very Marie Kondo-esque experience. <laughs> if you could just run me through how you ended up in Lebanon, right? And then how you ended up in the UK. Right. So I it was actually Israel, not Lebanon. Um, oh, okay. I got that wrong. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I wasn't super vocal about being based in Israel because I wasn't doing that much coverage actually of Israel while I was there for complicated reasons. Yeah, so I essentially I ended up there because we sort of had an interest at the time in having someone in the Middle East and it sort of made sense because we at one point had three reporters in the Middle East and then all of them ended up 
moving on to different jobs, some within the company and some externally. And that was sort of something that I had always had an interest in doing. I cover a lot of topics around tech and society or like tech and human rights, you know, ranging from some of the surveillance stuff I did in Xinjiang to like Southeast Asia and the impacts of social media and stuff like that. So I kind of wanted to continue working along some of those same themes in the Middle East. And Israel is actually a good place to do that because there are so many tech companies there, both companies that work in the surveillance world, like NSO Group and Cellbrite and stuff like that, as well as like lots of different kinds of like consumer tech companies, cybersecurity companies, like Israel is sort of the epicenter of that within the Middle East. And how long were you there for? I was there for like, I think just about a year. It wasn't that long. So how long have you been in London and why did you move there? I moved in January. I think we made the decision because essentially like I decided that I wanted to continue reporting on like this tech and society access. It made sense to kind of do that with a more thematic mandate rather than just regional. BuzzFeed is sort of unique in that our foreign correspondents are, a lot of us have like thematic mandates, like either instead of or in addition to like regional coverage. So like I have a colleague who's based in Delhi and she covers like specifically issues around women's rights. And a lot of that work does take place in India and South Asia, but she's also written stories about like Korea and China and lots of other places. We have a reporter who is focused on white nationalism like LGBT rights, all that stuff like we've sort of had historically. That sort of coverage works really well for us because we don't have the staff of uh, lots of larger news organizations. So I think that the thinking is sort of you become very specialized in this beat and it's a lot easier for you to own it and break really great stories and become like a real expert. So I kind of wanted to do that. And with Israel, it's like it's a very small country. The flight links, especially if the rest of the region are obviously not ideal. And I still sort of had an interest in continuing a lot of the work on Uyghurs and on China. And it's not super easy to do that from Israel, not because Israel and China have any issues or anything, but just because there's very few people that specialize in that part of the world. So I think like London is a good base because there's lots of sourcing opportunities for people from all around the world. And it's a really good place to get to other places as well on top of that. So it's good because I can be productive from a sourcing perspective while I'm here, but it's also not hard to travel to other places. Makes sense. So next, let's get into a story or two. Normally, I like to ask first about a story that got away. You know, a story you always wanted to do, but couldn't convince your editor, couldn't prove it. A reporting trip went horribly awry. Oh my God, there's so many. I can't even, I don't even know where to start with that. I think, I don't know whether this counts. It's not really a story, but I remember, I think my last year, my second to last year at Reuters, the foreign ministry had organized a trip to Tibet and I had never been to Tibet and I was so excited. I like, it was arranged that I was going to go, but then something happened and they backed out. I think what it was, was they would only allow visuals people to go because, you know, I think as a news organization, we made a decision that it was more important to send somebody from TV or photo and I didn't end up getting to go. But that made me really sad because of all the time I've spent in China, I never got to visit Tibet, which is such a huge part of the story of China. And it's also so probably the most inaccessible part of the PRC, especially for journalists, because you need to go on a tour or like you need a binder to go. So that's definitely a big regret for me. Yeah, I went to Tibet right before I joined Reuters because I knew I was going to apply for a J visa and then I would get that much <laughs> so more smart. difficult. But that <laughs> that meant because I, I didn't have that much time. That meant I went in January and it was freezing, but it was still, it was still cool. Mm, where'd you go? Uh, we went to Lhasa and actually I have a Tibetan friend who used to go to college in Beijing, met up with him there and that was cool. And then we went out to like Everest base camp mm -hmm. and I can't remember 
all where else we did, we never made it to base camp because it was the everything was frozen over the last like 14 kilometers but it was yeah. it was a lot of fun and the the minders aren't too bad you mostly just have to pay a driver and a guide um, right. but they don't particularly care what you get up to too much just don't yeah. pay the road checks and all that like there are checks everywhere yeah there's um, a couple others i just thought of this yeah like last year i had a story fall through it was meant to be in egypt i'm not going to say what the story was because i might still want to do it but suffice it to say it had to do with individual privacy issues in egypt and it was stymied for the same reason that a lot of people's stories are stymied which is that the egyptian government is like not good at giving press accreditation they make it incredibly hard you have to go and deal with some bureaucratic offices there and it takes a lot of time and it's something that you really need to work there. So that kind of stuff has caused a lot of stories to fall through for me. And then the other one is I did a piece on this woman named Anastasia Vashukovic, who was from Belarus. She was kind of like a socialite come like sex worker come like something else. I'm not really sure, but she was essentially holed up in Thailand. She was put in a detention facility there and I went to try to visit her because because she was claiming that she had some really vital information regarding the Trump-Russia investigation, which was a big story at the time. And I got there like just a little bit too late. I think it was like a few hours too late. And the detention center essentially had shut itself to foreign journalists. So I ended up spending like this really weird weekend, like hanging out with all of her friends who were this like really funny group of Russian 20-somethings that were hanging out in Pattaya and like taking a bunch of drugs going to these like weird pickup artist classes to learn how to pick up women. <laughs> it was like, it was very interesting to like learn about their culture. They were super fun to hang out with, but I never got to meet her, which I deeply regret. And then I ended up writing a funny little essay about it, but it was not the news story that I'd hoped to get. And I, I mean, obviously, I assume there would be a lot of stories you would write if you were still in China, but that's mm -hmm. no longer an option. I, I was curious how you feel about being shut out of China. If now that you're out, do you wish you were still there? Or now that you've shifted your focus, are you fine to be shut out of China? Do you think they'll ever let you back in? Will they ever let me back in? I'm not sure. Nobody ever said to me, you could never come back or it was never like that. I think for everybody who has been through this thing of having their visa canceled or revoked, there's like a level of ambiguity. I always thought that I would be able to go back eventually, but then and, you know, the situation in China, even since I left in 2018, has changed significantly. It's a lot more hostile to foreigners. It's hostile to the U.S. in particular. Being a U.S. national, that's not something that I find it easy to ignore. Even if you look now in the news, like you'll see People's Daily implying that the coronavirus is something that was like an American plot directed at China. I mean, the People's Daily is the mouthpiece of the Communist Party. So that's pretty crazy. Like, I can't really imagine that happening even like a couple of years ago. It's like a very militant thing. And then if you look at what has happened with Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who are the two Canadians that are now in prison, I believe, in China or in detention, I can't remember which, both of them have been sort of caught up in this larger diplomatic row between the U.S. and China. It seems to me that in both of the cases, the allegations against them are with 
without merit. And even if there were any merit to it, we would never know because there's no due process in China and there's no transparency. So I think there's a lot of risk for people who have already gotten on the bad side of the government to then go back and work. I would be really concerned about going back to work. I think going back as a tourist to see friends and stuff would be a different story possibly, but I think it's a tough thing to predict. And I guess like, do I want to be back? It's hard to say. I lived there for so long. I never really thought that I would be there for the whole of my professional life anyway. I didn't want to leave in the way that I did, of course. It was like actually pretty devastating. I do look back. It's been a huge news year for China between the Hong Kong protests, the kind of ongoing human rights abuses in Xinjiang, the economy, now the coronavirus story. It's just one thing after another. As a journalist, you always want to sort of be in the middle of a big story. So there's part of me that sort of thinks that I might have had something to contribute to some of those stories. But, you know, on another level, it's like, you know, your career moves on. Like, as you know, too, Jake, you move and then you move on to different kinds of stories. You still bring the knowledge that you developed in another posting and hopefully some of that expertise. But I think in the end, as a journalist, it's really hard to keep focusing on a story where you have no physical access. Like there are people that do it. There are people that write about China and aren't there. Certainly there's a lot of academics that do not visit or cannot visit and they spend whole careers writing about China. So it's possible, but it's not really the most desirable outcome. And then let's talk about a story that you're proud of. I mean, if you could pick a story, explain a little bit about what it was about and walk us through the whole process. So I wrote this piece in the Philippines in November 2016. I wanted to talk about it on this podcast because nobody read it because it was November 2016. Like all people were reading about was Donald Trump. So I had put all this time into the story that I still think is a really good story and that I'm still really proud of, but it didn't get the audience that I had hoped it would get. This was sort of at the height of Rodrigo Duterte's drug war, which was this incredibly brutal campaign, essentially targeting drug users using the force of police departments and like armed vigilantes who were wandering the streets of Manila with impunity, especially the slums and other low-income areas. There was a lot of coverage of the drug war, but I wanted to kind of write about the U.S. connection. The U.S., of course, has a historical link to the Philippines because of the kind of colonial past. And on top of that, we continue to give a lot of aid to the Philippines in the form of uh, humanitarian aid as well as like sort of military and police aid. And I wanted to look at some of those police aid dollars and, you know, whether they were actually going to these police that were literally in the slums of Manila just shooting up people and stuff like that, like really with impunity, like with really no consequences for those abuses. So the reporting for the story started in D.C. Essentially what I wanted was to figure out where the USA to police departments in the Philippines was actually going because I knew that if I could figure that out, I could figure out then whether those departments, those individual units of police were responsible for atrocities because that sort of stuff was being documented in the Philippines already. Like the police in the Philippines keep that kind of data. Of course, they don't call it atrocities, but they were keeping track of like things like deaths and shootings and stuff like that. So essentially, I went to a source in D.C. asking around quite a bit for anyone who would have this information. I eventually got this list from a source. It was like a State Department list of individual police units that were being supported by U.S. aid dollars. And essentially, like this was significant because there's a law in the U.S. called the Leahy Law. And the Leahy Law essentially says that U.S. aid money cannot be given to 
police units or military units that are engaged in, uh, I, I believe it's called gross human rights violations. So the U.S., in short, like has a responsibility to ensure that taxpayer money is not going to fund like human rights abuses abroad carried out by military and police units. So then after I got that list, went to the Philippines, spent a lot of time hanging around police departments in Manila and chatting up the police and ended up getting a lot more data from the police in Manila, which was sort of the epicenter of the drug war that showed which units were responsible for a lot of the bloodshed, compared those two sets of data and then arrived essentially at the conclusion that U.S. money was bankrolling training and some equipment even for police that were out there killing people in the slums. I spent a lot of time just going with Kimmy Dela Cruz, who interpreted and helped set up some interviews and also took the photos for that story and is a journalist in the Philippines. We ended up going to a lot of poor neighborhoods on the fringes of Manila, like sort of every night, like where police were actually carrying out these raids and saw them do it quite a few times. And those trips created situations where we could meet people that we could photograph and who would be willing to talk to us and end up as real people who were characters in the story. So that was sort of the story, I guess. Cool. And so you would follow the raid and then in the aftermath of the raid, go in and talk to people who had witnessed it or were somehow affected by it? More or less. Like, I'll just explain how it worked at the time because it's kind of interesting. Basically, what it would happen was around like 11 at night, essentially a whole bunch of the journalists who were following the story consistently, which essentially included a lot of photographers and videographers from the Philippines, any like rando foreign journalists like myself that happened to be dropping in, some wire reporters from like Reuters, AP and others, and like anybody else, like everybody would just sort of meet around like 11 p.m. at the Metro Manila Police Headquarters and there was like a little building where everybody would hang out. And like these were like the early, early days of the drug war. So the police in the Philippines were quite proud of what they were doing. They were doing it, of course, at the behest of the then new Philippine president, Rodrigo Duterte, who had sort of explicitly called on police to use any means necessary to crack down drug users. So like, keep in mind, a lot of these people, they may be small-time users. Perhaps they hadn't used it all, but just sort of gotten on the bad side of the wrong official. There's just like no oversight or due process at all. It was just a campaign that allowed police to kill with impunity, unfortunately. So we would all get together, and because the police were so proud of this situation, they would call up reporters and say, like, we're planning a raid in this neighborhood at such and such time, like, come over. So all of the journalists would sort of, there was a lot of camaraderie there. Everyone would sort of go in a convoy because a lot of neighborhoods of Manila aren't, like, super safe in the middle of the night. So everyone would travel together sort of for safety. And we'd all get in vans or cars and just head off to these neighborhoods. And the visuals people would just be taking video or they would photograph, like, as the police carried out these raids. We saw some really crazy stuff. Like, I really feel for the journalists, especially the journalists from the Philippines who are mostly, like, quite young and who cover the stuff day in, day out. They would do it every single week, like five, six nights a week from 11 p.m. to about 4 a.m., just nonstop violence. And then they would go to bed and wake up and do it again. And even the short time that I did it, it was quite difficult. I mean, we saw homes that had been just shot up by police. The police would let you come in and walk all over the crime zone. Uh, I don't know why. We saw someone basically be executed, like with a paper bag over his head. It was just like really, really brutal stuff. And it was all sort of happening in plain sight. Like all of the neighbors would come out. There was one occasion 
where there was a boy, I guess he was either a teenage boy or just over 20, but like a boy or a young man who was shot down in the middle of the street. And then I think it was his grandmother came out and then one of the journalists sort of had to inform her what had happened. And of course, she was absolutely distraught. It was complete chaos. It was just absolute chaos. And I'm really glad that I was able to get a lot of that detail into the story. Of course, I was not at all the first person to have witnessed any of this stuff, nor am I a specialist in that subject. But I think that if the story had just been one around data, if the investigation had just focused on this like U.S. involvement and sort of the data around it, it would have been kind of hard to read. Like, I think it really matters to have that human element in a story because people are able to follow stories a lot better. They're a lot more compelling when you can see the harm that is caused by some of this stuff. Like, the fact that the U.S. is enabling human rights abuses is meaningless unless you can really conceptualize what a human rights abuse really is, you know, how it really affects people who are innocent and their families and their homes, how people lose their son or their brother, who is like the primary breadwinner in a home for essentially like no reason. Yeah. So I think both parts of that story were like quite important to me. And I think they both worked together to make the story work. After the story came out, the State Department ended up withdrawing a big aid package to the Philippine National Police. There is no indication that it was because of the story per se. And I'm sure if you ask them, they would say they would have done it anyway. But in any case, I think it's a positive consequence of people becoming aware of that connection through my story and through other channels as well. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So the next part is more fast paced questions. Do you feel ready? Yeah, let's do it. First question is, what is a must read publication that you look at almost every day? God, I'm going to like conform to stereotypes and say Twitter. Like, <laughs> and, like I want to sure. make two points. Okay, number one, social media is a publication. It's curated. Like, let's get over the notion that it's sort of a utility or something or just a conduit for information. It's curated by people and machines. So it's a publication. And also, I like Twitter because, yes, it's accessible, but it enables me to follow individuals based on their work. And I can follow them through different jobs and based on their expertise and their work. And that's, like, invaluable to me. So I love Twitter for that. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun that isn't for your job? I still love The New Yorker. I've been reading The New Yorker for pretty much since I was probably 15 or 16, and I'm obsessed with it, and I continue to love it. I just think it's always at a certain standard, and it's always like a wonderful read. I, it helps me learn about things that I wouldn't otherwise sort of have access to. So yeah, that's got to be mine, I think. And then what's the best journalistic piece that you've consumed recently? I'm not sure if it's okay to say a book, but I'm in the middle of, or almost at the end, actually, of David Sanger's book, The Perfect Weapon, which is about the history of cybersecurity, basically from Snowden until now. And Sanger is, of course, a longtime national security writer for The New York Times. And I think this is maybe his third book, maybe even more. But it's a really, really excellent overview called from like his years of reporting on that subject. And it just got has all kinds of characters ranging from D.C. and Virginia, like all the way to Zhongnanhai in China and Russia. And it's just like a really good way to understand how the debates about cybersecurity and privacy especially have changed from the Snowden era until now. And then is there any particular subject matter you read into specifically that isn't related to your job? I read a lot of 
fiction. I read a lot of food writing. And I also read obsessively about all of the Me Too stuff. I probably have done that since before Me Too was Me Too, just like sort of about sexual harassment and like women's rights in the workplace kind of more broadly. I'm really interested in that stuff. And I do like mentorship projects for women journalists and sort of other things in that community. So it's sort of useful for me to keep up on that, even though it doesn't directly relate to my work. And the next question we've kind of already touched on, but it's, is Twitter important to you? But I guess if there's anything more you'd like to say about Twitter. Yeah, I would just say it's helped my career a lot. So I can't hit on Twitter too much. You know, a lot of people are mean to me on Twitter, so that's what I don't like about it. But the good things are that it's enabled me to connect with people that I would never have otherwise met in real life. Like I've met like real life friends just like through Twitter. And it's definitely helped me boost my profile, which I think is really important in this industry, especially having started as a wire reporter. I think Twitter helped a lot. Probably a lot of people wouldn't have known who I was without Twitter. And at BuzzFeed, I kind of feel like we probably pay a little bit too much attention to Twitter, given that it doesn't really generate a lot of traffic. Like if you really look at traffic statistics, a lot of it does not come from Twitter. And I would, I don't know, but I would suspect that that would be true for other news platforms as well. But regardless, that's sort of where a lot of the conversation in whatever you want to call it, like the U.S. intelligentsia, or among people that you would like to be your sources is happening. So I think it's useful for that. Yeah, I would say I'm not great at Twitter, but I was going to mention that you taught me a valuable lesson about Twitter when we were once at, this was a long time ago, at Diao Yutai. We were covering Mm. some big formal event and you know, one of the handlers came up to me and he said, oh, would you like to ask a question? And I was like, oh yeah, definitely put me on the list. I'll ask mm-hmm. a question. And then it became clear it wasn't going to happen till the afternoon. And it was one of these big events that last a long time. And we were going to switch out reporters. Mm-hmm. And you were there at the same time as me. And like I was going to switch out for our colleague, Kevin, who is mm-hmm. Chinese descent guy. And I basically I told the handler this, like, listen, if it's after this time, it's going to be this guy. And he was very much like made it very clear he wanted it to be me because they, I'm oh, from man, the I US, so they want me to be white. Yeah. Like was the subtext. And I remember telling you this and then, yeah, you tweeted about it. And it's something that like before that, it had never occurred to me that all these interesting things happened to us in China. Right, but right. I'm a little bit too much of a literalist sometimes when it comes to Twitter. And it doesn't like I need to like look more broadly about the stuff I tweet about. And, you know, of course, people find that sort of stuff outrageous and very interesting. And I mean, it is outrageous. I actually it's funny, like I learned that from Mike Forsyth who is an amazing journalist, but also is amazing at Twitter. I remember we were covering some briefing at the defense ministry in China, and it was like we went in the room and the chairs had these hideous lace doilies on them. They were so ugly. And like, you would never think, you know, who would care about this? But then actually not a lot of people get to go to the Ministry of Defense in China. And some people might be curious about what it looks like inside. And that's not worth a story for sure. But is it worth a tweet? Probably yes. And he tweeted a photo of it and people just loved it. It was this little peek in side. And I was like, oh, maybe the mundane details of my life where I mostly hang around and wait for Chinese officials to show up actually is interesting to some people. So I started doing more as a result of that. And then the next question is, if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, 
who would it be? Mm, I have many answers to this. Okay, so for living journalists, I would say I really love Rukmini Kalamaki's work. And she's had a very broad career, but still sort of managed to carve out a niche where she is the expert. Like she really knows that story inside and out. And she's good at everything. Like she's good at podcasts. She's good at stories. Like she's good at long projects, short projects, breaking news. She can do social media really well. She's just like a real all-star to me. So I think she's great. And I would also say Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's at the Times Magazine. I just really, really admire all of her work. I sort of very briefly worked like, I can't even say I worked with her, but I worked sort of adjacent to her when I was interning at ProPublica a million years ago. And she was great then. And she's, she's really, really great now. And I really appreciate the kind of historical lens that she brings to her work and how she doesn't maintain this silly pretense of objectivity in a way that some other journalists might like, not to say that she's not objective, but like she doesn't try to be neutral, I think about the work that she's doing. I think she sort of sees it as a cause. And I think that actually that's done a lot of good for the work because it's sort of created a sense of urgency around issues that might otherwise be written off as a historical wrong and not really worthy of the current news cycle. And she's really done a good job in repudiating that and doing it in a really rigorous evidence-based way. So I, I super admire that. She's known for covering issues facing African-Americans writ large, but she's sort of best known for her work documenting school segregation in the United States. But she is now currently doing this big project at the Times Magazine around slavery and legacy of slavery, which I think is really amazing because it's, of course, something that I think the U.S. has not even begun to reckon with fully. And I think her project is part of that, which is great. And kind of one of the most prestigious magazines in the country. It's really awesome. Sure. And Rufmini Kalamaki is uh, known for her coverage of ISIS, although, like you said, she's had a long career. And she did that podcast that the right. name escapes me. It's a caliphate, I think, yeah. And then dead journalists, any come to mind? Yes. I love John Hersey, who is best known for his long work in The New Yorker, where he went to Hiroshima in the aftermath of the A-bomb and documented what was happening there. And he did a lot of great work, but I think that's the one that kind of has made him a historical figure. He is sort of a very classic example of bearing witness to something that has to be witnessed. And he brought it, I think, to audiences in the U.S., the kind of totality of what had been done there. And he did it with a lot of sensitivity and showed a lot of courage, of course, going there at a very dangerous time. So yeah, I, I think he's really great. And then Nellie Bly, who was a journalist in the U.S. in the early 20th century, well, she was best known for like her undercover work. Like she did a lot of things in her life. I think she was like an aviator. She was just like a woman about town, but she also worked as a journalist and she went undercover to a mental hospital to like document abuses. And she did all this kind of undercover work, which is really cool. Cause like, first of all, it wouldn't have been super easy to do that as a woman to be taken seriously around that time. Like, I've never done any undercover work. Of course, like, the ethics of it are hotly debated in our industry, but I always thought it would be fun to do. And, like, it's a really cool way to document, like, worker abuses in particular. You know, like, Mother Jones publishes a lot of work like that. And it's interesting because you get to details of sort of the lived experience of workers in a way that you could really never do if you were just doing things like interviews with workers and stuff like that. There's so many examples of that. Like, there's, like, Barbara Ehrenreich's work, Nicole and dimed, which isn't exactly undercover, but she sort of lived the experience of a 
minimum wage workers who tried to. There's like the Wall Street Journal ages and ages ago had like an undercover story, I believe, about like oyster shucking. There's so many examples, but I think she's like the godmother of that school of investigative journalism, which I think sort of persists today. Yeah, I remember the Wall Street Journal won a Pulitzer a long time back at this point about chicken processing plants and things Mm -hmm. where the reporter went in and submitted his application and he he put that he worked for Dow Jones on his resume, but it was a chicken factory and nobody paid Mm. attention. So yeah, so amazing. Yeah. And then the next question is, what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? That's a tough one. It's kind of a job interview question, I guess. (laughs) I try to bring sensitivity to the subject, I think, in a way that maybe is hard for other journalists. You know, I try to see things from their perspective and try to sort of figure out why they're engaging. And first of all, make sure that they feel not just protected, but also just like heard. When I started out, I used to think that people are doing us a favor by speaking with us. But you know, a lot of times they just want to be listened to, they want to be heard, and they think they have something important to say, and they want somebody who's really going to engage with that and not just use them or write them off. And so I try to like make sure that whether it's like a hostile interview or a friendly one, I try to just make sure that they feel sort of empathized with in some way. So I think that's something that I, is possibly something that I do that is different from other people's styles of reporting. What is one thing you wish you could travel back and tell your younger self? Like, I think my younger self, I was kind of worried about the kind of difficulties of working in media as an industry, like the kind of instability of working in this industry. And I continue to feel that way. But I think one way to sort of insulate yourself from that is to just always recognize that in the end, you should think about it as the things that you're creating, you're creating for your own career, you're creating it for your own reasons, whether that's to make an impact on something or get a certain kind of readership or whatever reasons you might have, that stuff should really come first. If you're writing in a certain way, simply to please your employer or to impress your bosses at a particular place, I think it's a bad way to frame a career. Like you need to do that, of course, to some extent, but In the end, you and I are not going to have the kinds of careers that people a generation above us would have had. Like, we're not going to have the luxury of staying in one place or like one newsroom for the entirety of our careers and sort of having the stability of that. So I think that we have to focus on creating things that sort of translate to multiple audiences that we can continue to be proud of even after we've left a particular job that we can carry with us as, as sort of a personal accomplishment and something that doesn't only work within a certain style or a certain context. So I think like, for instance, like when I was a student journalist, I wasn't really thinking about it that way. I sort of just wanted to produce stuff that would go well in student paper. But if I could go back, I would have said, you know, you should investigate something that has a broader resonance, whether that's frat hazing or homelessness on campus, financial aid for students, like all of these issues that are sort of big issues in the U.S. when we talk about education, but don't necessarily figure into like the kind of day to day coverage of a student paper. But like those are the sort of things that would get you noticed by a professional recruiter, for instance. And like the same thing holds true in like all my subsequent jobs I think like now I try to be really conscious of this like I try to write stuff that I think will serve BuzzFeed well but will also carry me forward for the rest of my career stuff that I can continue being proud of and will stand the test of time at least uh, a few years into the future of course like not every piece you write is going to be like that but I think in a year you should strive to produce as many works that are like that as you possibly can The next question is, what is one thing that most people don't know about you? When I was a student in China, I earned money in like a lot of weird ways. (laughs) 
but one of them was I was a cartoon voice actor. <laughs> I was I played a waitress in a noodle shop that knew kung fu and she like moonlighted in these like street fights. And yeah, <laughs> so that's what I did. And I actually among the stars of this weird cartoon ensemble was also our former colleague Adam Rose, who played my husband at one point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Reuters Lorp. <laughs> it was an English language cartoon released in China. CCTV had made this cartoon in Chinese language. For some reason, they wanted to enter it in the Cannes Film Festival. So they were going to dub it in English. So I was like the dubbed voice of this Kung Fu waitress. <laughs> what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? I will be unoriginal and say Spotlight. I love Spotlight. It is probably my favorite movie ever about journalism. Probably I like it even more than All the President's Men, which is considered the gold standard in that genre. Or I love the screwball comedies like His Girl Friday and Philadelphia Story and stuff too. But the reason I love Spotlight in particular is that not only just the fact that it's extremely realistic in its portrayal of the absolute drudgery of investigative journalism and how like utterly unglamorous it is to like knock on doors and like sit in a room wearing like bad clothes and like whatever um, under fluorescent lighting and like do this work. But I also love it because Sasha Pfeiffer's character, which is much more true to life than pretty much any portrayal of female journalists in the media I can think of. Like female journalists in the media are almost always portrayed as basically like glorified prostitutes. And it's not a good image for the profession. Like, I mean, of course, no shade to sex workers, but it's not right to portray female journalists as essentially exchanging sex for information. And like, there's so many examples of this, everything from House of Cards to Thank You for Smoking, like right. just like zillions and zillions. And like, the thing is, you think that people don't take this stuff seriously because it's Hollywood, but they really really do. Like, I can't tell you how many times people have asked me, even sources, you know, people who have been to college, people who are seem to be smart about the world, maybe people who should know better, right, will, will say like, but it's really like that, right? Like, like, tell the truth. You know, it, it discourages young women from going into the profession. It encourages sources to sexually harass female journals, which happens all the time, by the way. And it's something that we never talk about in the industry, because it's like, there's no good fix for it. It encourages all of the stuff that we saw around Me Too, where young women, Women journalists are mistreated within their own workplaces. It's just an incredibly toxic part of the way our culture talks about female journalists. And I really appreciate that Spotlight reflected the reality of the Spotlight team at the Boston Globe and portrayed the woman member of that team in an incredibly accurate way and showed, you know, the totality of like the, the hard work that she did and how much she contributed to that story. And it was just like a real breath of fresh air. Uh, and then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? If I had the brains for it, I would love to be a doctor or any other kind of medical personnel, like working like an aid work, basically, like development work or aid work. I like the idea of you're helping vulnerable people, but in a very like tactile way where you can see the kind of results of your labor in a direct way. We don't really get that with journalism too much. So that's really appealing to me. And if qualifications were a factor, I would probably still say like aid work in some capacity, I think. Cool. That's a good answer. Okay. Well, how do you feel about everything? Is there anything you think we didn't touch on we should have in the interview? No. Yeah. I talked about a lot. So thanks so much for doing this. I know it took a of time. No worries. That's our show. 
Thanks for listening to my conversation with Mega Rajagopalan, a London-based investigative reporter with BuzzFeed. I'll post links to some of Mega's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave it a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the show, please recommend it to them. This show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, April 19th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.